in the Civil Rights Act of 1968, America does move forward. And the bell of freedom rings out a little louder. This is A Little Louder, a podcast for wonks, housers, and rabble-rousers, where we talk about fair housing, community development, and how we can use these issues to build people power and work toward equity and justice. I'm Christina Rosales. And I'm John Henneberger. And today, we're talking about a very technical thing called the Qualified Allocation Plan with one of our fellow housers, Elizabeth Ream. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi there. Just for background for our listeners, Housing tax credits are a way that Texas produces a lot of affordable housing, um, low-income housing tax credits. So in Texas, the Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs, um, they choose the projects that will get these tax credits that help developers build these apartments, these affordable housing projects. And the way that TDHCA picks these, these projects is through a formula set out by the Qualified Allocation Plan. How am I doing, Elizabeth? Does that sound right to you? Yes, that's one of the clear explanations I've heard of, of how this works. Recently, you, Elizabeth, took the, the onerous task of providing comments on the Qualified Allocation Plan proposed by, by TDHCA. What we wanted to do today is to hear you talk a little bit about some of the highlights that any houser in Texas should know about what is, what is proposed on the QAP. Yeah, happy to talk about it. I mean, this is such an important program, as you mentioned. In 2020, TDHCA, the Texas Department that distributes our federal allocation of these tax credits at the state level, uh, is giving out about $80 million in tax credits this year. And then those will repeat for uh, about 10 years. So it's a lot of money for a lot of units. Elizabeth, I think it's fair to say that the Qualified Allocation Plan, or the QAP, is a rather dense document. It's, I believe that you're probably the only person who participates in the formulation of this document and comments on it from the standpoint of what's in the best interest of people in the state and especially the people who need this type of housing. How many pages is this? I think it's 150, the draft for 2021. 150 single-spaced pages of rules for affordable housing. This is the rules that controls how that money. Yeah, so this is this is big money, and there are definitely a lot of development interests being represented in the QAP commenters. Um, there are some other nonprofits that also comment, but yeah, I'd say for the most part, you're getting you know some some strong interests in terms of uh, those who would like to receive this money. Yeah, and and I've I've been in your shoes before and tried to advocate uh, for changes in the QAP back years ago, and I'm very glad that you are now doing it because it just about drove me nuts. But when I th- <laughs> when I I remember how the QAP worked, it tries to get at five questions. Number one is, who's the housing for? Is it for people with special needs? Is it for families? Is it for the elderly? And so there are rules that control how much money goes to each of these different populations. So the first question is, who's the QAP says, who's the housing for? The second question is, is it answers the question, where will the housing be built? Which is important because 
you know, that's one of the biggest considerations that anybody who rents has when they look for a, a home. Is it a safe neighborhood? Is it an environmentally safe neighborhood? Is it uh, free from crime? Is there a good school that I can send my kids to nearby? So that's the second question that QAP tries to get at. The third is, how much is the rent? So the QAP also attempts to uh, provide incentives to developers to create units, at least some units in developments that are lower rents. And the pushback on that is from the developers who want to keep most of the money in their pocket rather than lowering the rents. The fourth question is, how well is it managed and kept up? And again, the QAP talks about how many years will a housing be affordable? What sort of standards will it have to be made, will it have to be built to? Will it be built of in a in with quality materials and the like? And the final question is is the process for giving away eight hundred million dollars effectively each year in public money for affordable housing? Is that process of awarding that money, is it competitive, is it fair, and is it non-political? And I think that we should maybe look at the QAP this year in terms of these five questions and try to answer, you know, where is the QAP going, uh, need, where does the QAP need improvement within any of these five areas? So I think that's a great framing to think about different areas of how the QAP is affecting what type of housing gets built. This year, the QAP proposed changes are, I'd say, most controversial around that item number one, who is being served by LIHTC housing with a new addition of some criminal screening requirements that we can talk about. Um, So for a little context, most of the low-income housing tax credit projects or LIHTC projects that receive these tax credits um, they have some requirements for serving people of low income, but they don't have to serve a particular population. But there are some options to apply for uh, housing for seniors or housing for people who need supportive housing. And so specifically within that supportive housing definition this year, um, so this is housing that's meant to serve people with, um, with very high acuity needs. So someone who needs maybe a case manager um, to help them in order to uh, maintain permanent housing could be people who have previously experienced homelessness. That's a common use of it, um, and just other people that need that kind of long-term support. In the supportive housing area, uh, TDHCA has proposed adding a criminal screening requirement that would go into effect with, for projects applying in 2021, and it's a, it's a very stringent requirement. It uh, goes into detail um, with a life ban in LIHTC supportive housing for people who are on a sex offender registry um, and then some shorter term bans on people that have um, a felony conviction or um, even a class A misdemeanor conviction. So pretty uh, wide array of people that are affected by this. So Elizabeth, help our listeners understand why a ban on people with certain felony convictions is a problem. Yeah, so one of the biggest problems with this is um, thinking about uh, the scope of of homelessness and housing instability and the idea that housing is a human right and everyone needs to be housed. Even if you don't believe housing is a human right, you probably believe that homelessness shouldn't continue to exist and 
Um, the way things work now um, within the private market, there's a lot of discrimination against people with criminal histories. And then even within supportive housing, there's often there are often requirements, you know, for example, in Section 8 and other federal programs. Um, so all different programs have their, their screening requirements. And those often screen people out based on criminal history. And so if you're looking at our society and our, our kind of housing stock, you need more housing available for people with criminal records. And so there's a, there's a much higher proportion of, of people who have criminal records within um, populations experiencing homelessness. And, you know, I think that part of that is because they have such a hard time finding housing. So when you're thinking about supportive housing, which TDHC's criminal screening requirement affects, um, you're looking at people who really need some kind of support, perhaps because they're exiting institutions or incarceration, and then you're excluding people from this housing that's specifically built to support them um, because of that criminal record. And so you're just reducing even more the housing stock that's available for people with criminal records. And the question is basically, do we believe in reintegrating people who are coming out of the the system of incarceration into back into the community because the alternative as you say is that people basically are forced to spend their life in homeless shelters exactly and it, it really fits into the current conversation on over policing and the criminal justice system and this is kind of the other side of policing and, and incarceration and there are all these discriminatory effects within uh, within policing and within who is incarcerated and who is convicted of these crimes and then the effects continue even there even after they have you know served whatever time um, people are often uh, continuing to to feel the effects and so it's it's interesting in the way that it links to a lot of those current conversations. Are we talking about here a situation where the government is giving discretion to apartment owners to be able to say no to folks, or is it something more that the this rule is proposing to do? Yeah, so what this rule is proposing to do, it's, I mean, it really is kind of tight in its scope. Um, and I think the way that it's most harmful is that it fits in with all these other rules and other systems that, that align with it. Um, but what this specific rule is doing is only within low-income housing tax credit supportive housing which I believe last year there were about four to six applications for that out of, say, 175. Those are ballpark numbers. And out of 175 total uh, low-income housing tax credit project proposals last year, so, you know, it's you know under 5%, and I think that's consistent year-to-year. It's a handful of projects year-to-year. But then, you know, they continue in their affordability and to be in the LIHTC program for 30 to 45 years, and these requirements would uh, stay with the property. So... This rule would require that within low-income housing tax credit supportive housing developments that are awarded in 2021 or later, that those projects would utilize this very specific prescriptive criminal screening criteria that's been written into the QAP. This is a situation where the state of Texas is telling anybody who uses low-income housing tax credits in a supportive housing situation that they may not rent to these individuals. This is not an option on their part. The state is just forbidding people from renting to these populations, right? Yes, that's correct. So it's a state mandate against housing these people in low-income housing tax credit supportive housing. The criminal screening requirement has a disparate impact on people of color. 
because of the the structure because of the the systemic racism in our criminal justice system is that right exactly yes and so based on my understanding of where disparate impact uh, rulings stand in our district uh, my understanding is that this would be legal within Texas to do this um, despite the you know literal disparate impact but in practice it is hugely discriminatory based on race for example if you look at the number of black people in Texas that are incarcerated based on drug use just in Texas um, black people are 11.7 times more likely to be incarcerated on drug charges than white people and black men are almost 14 times more likely than white men um, so you can see just in that alone where you have within this proposed rule you have the temporary denials for felonies and so that will um, vastly affect people who are black um, at a greater rate than people of other races Elizabeth where's the impetus for this change to the qualified allocation rules coming from? Who's behind it? So there are rumors that this has come directly from the governor uh, and that that's the reason that it's being added. This type of criminal screening has never been in the the QAP before. It was kind of, you know, out of left field in the way that it was added this year. And so there's no data that this is based on. It's really just based on misconceptions and stereotypes and fear around people with criminal backgrounds. There has been um, there have been statements from TDHCA this year that part of the impetus for this was um, fears that were vocalized by parents and neighbors of a proposed LIHTC property in the University of Texas area in 2020, and that um, those neighbors and those parents of University of Texas students were so fearful about the possibility of a supportive housing project that would allow people with certain criminal backgrounds that TDHCA felt compelled to, to add this, perhaps at the request of the governor. move on to other topics that are important to housers uh, around the state uh, related to the QAP. The, the next question is, where does it get built? And that's been a question that's been really controversial. Could you help us understand what today's QAP does about saying where the housing gets built? In terms of your second area, where this housing is built, school quality is a really major issue that Texas Housers cares about year after year, and TDHCA is proposing some troubling changes around uh, what type of school quality is allowed. Um, what we're looking at in the QAP is we want people to be able to live in an area um, of high opportunity, so near high-quality schools, in a low-poverty area, near a grocery store, near all the amenities that people would want. Um, and school quality is such an immense part of this, um, particularly for, I mean, honestly, for any family. Everyone wants to live near a high-quality school. It's indicative of how the students will perform while they're in school, as well as kind of their long-term achievements. School quality comes up a few times in the QAP. Um, there's an area of the QAP called neighborhood risk factors. And so this is looking at um, areas where the QAP is essentially saying, mm, these areas aren't so good, but they're okay if you provide some type of mitigation. And then there's an area of the QAP designating areas that are completely ineligible 
for, for development of LIHTC, certain school districts that are poorly performing, um, as well as high poverty and some other things. So TDHCA has, last year in the QAP for 2020 application, designated ineligible certain school attendance zones. And so that in 2018, if the school received an improvement required rating, so that's extremely poor performing. So if uh, improvement was required in 2018 and the school received an F in 2019 when TEA, the Texas Education Agency, started using letter grades for schools, then that area is ineligible for LIHTC development. Um, and so in terms of the QAP from 2020 to the proposed changes in 2021, TDHCA has proposed keeping the those same um, specific letter and kind of grading designations. But because in 2020, due to COVID, TEA didn't give out ratings, TDHCA has, I believe, wisely proposed to, in most areas, just keep that same language and look at the 2018 and 2019 ratings because those are the most recent that exist. But the thing that's a little troubling is that within the neighborhood risk factors area, where you're looking at schools that had a D or an F in 2019, um, TDHCA has proposed for 2021 to remove the requirement for mitigation. And when I look at this, it seems obvious that if, uh, if they're saying these schools are pretty bad and that this mitigation is required, then if you don't have the ratings in 2020 and you're trying to do something different, my inclination would be make those areas ineligible for development. Um, but what TDHCA has done instead is propose that those schools with the neighborhood risk factors, these poorly performing schools, just be allowed to develop without providing any mitigation. So just um, basically saying that those areas are fine now with, uh, without developers having to show anything to prove that. Uh, and then lastly, around the fifth area that you mentioned, competition is really important because the QAP is the way that developers are incentivized to build in certain ways. And the changes to the opportunity index this year are really reducing the competition to uh, to make developers strive towards high-quality housing in those high-opportunity areas that people really want to be living. So one aspect of the, of the QAP is that it awards points to projects based on this opportunity index. So essentially, when apartment projects are close to amenities like grocery stores and good schools and public transportation, they get more points, they're more likely to, to be approved and, uh, and, and to be built. So what is changing this year in the QAP draft um, related to the Opportunity Index? In the 2021 QAP, TDHCA is proposing to vastly increase the distances to a lot of those amenities that are really important for people. Um, and we're starting from a point where even in 2020, out of about 200 points in the whole competitive QAP, uh, the Opportunity Index only a lot seven points, and it's kind of a menu of options. Um, if the property meets the first requirement, which is about the poverty level, then they come to a menu of options where they can get those other five points. And so it looks at proximity to um, public transit and frequency of public transit, proximity to grocery stores, parks, um, all those types of things. And um, within urban areas, the Opportunity Index in 2020 required a lot of those amenities to be within one mile of the proposed development site in order to get the opportunity index points. And TDHC is proposing doubling a lot of those to two miles for the 2021 competitive process. And that's really significant when you're looking at people with children trying to walk to the park or you're looking at 
um, someone with a disability going to the grocery store to pick something up, 20 minutes, um, a 20 minute walk, maybe for an average walk, speed walker up to a 40 minute walk each way is just a really big difference. And especially when you're thinking about people with mobility concerns or, or children, um, it's just really, really changing the way that the opportunity index will work. And right now in 2020, the, the um, opportunity index is again for seven points and all or practically all of the proposed developments already got the seven points last year. So this already isn't really a competitive area. So they're just, TDHC is essentially proposing just giving the same points for less for no apparent reason. And a lot of the developers consider the, when they're looking at the QAP, they're hoping to allow, allow points for, you know, cheaper sites so that they don't get into bidding wars with other LIHTC developers trying to get the same site. Um, but essentially what this is doing is not solving that. It's just going to move any type of bidding wars to locations that are farther from amenities because they're all going to want the sites that are um, that both qualify for all the opportunity index points and also are most affordable. So it's really not even resolving the developers' concerns. It's only making the locations of LIHTC worse for tenants. Yeah. So, so to sum up, you know, considering the, this big public subsidy that developers might be getting, you know, tenants are not getting anything in return. Exactly. Having for years been the person at Housers who testifies on the QAP, I'm so appreciative and sympathetic to what Elizabeth is is doing here it's a lonely and difficult struggle to be an advocate the only advocate in the room for the people who need the housing and who live in the housing the it's it's worth looking at a what a tdhca board meeting looks like and it's a big packed room full of developers bankers lobbyists people who are competing to get the money and competing to arrange the rules so that they make the most money in providing this housing that they possibly can. And that often runs in contradiction to the needs and the interests of the people who live in the housing. So it's a it's a hugely important thing that Elizabeth is engaged in this hugely complex and difficult process. And I just want to give her a shout out because it's a particularly lonely role to be the only advocate in the room on the behalf of the people who live in the housing. As Elizabeth said, it's 150 pages of very dense writing that is totally inaccessible to people who live in, the, in, in these low-income housing tax credit properties. Um, but as, as you can see, the rules proposed and, and approved have a major impact on, on Texas and what affordable housing looks like in Texas. So I think it behooves everyone, if, you're, if you consider yourself a houser, uh, to get acquainted with the QAP. Um, Elizabeth certainly, certainly has. Or show up at a TDHC board meeting and sit next to Elizabeth so she doesn't feel so lonely. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> All right, that's our show. Let us know what you want to hear. Email me at christina at texashousing.org. Our show is produced by John and me, and music is by JT Herchmack. We'll see you all later. Bye.
I've stayed.